of any announcements that I need to make tonight. So just mark that on the calendar. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord, walking by the Spirit, if necessary, to confess sin in silent prayer to the Lord. And then after silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's such a privilege we have to gather together as a body of believers, to teach your word, learn your word, to teach the whole counsel of your word, not have any fear of government interference, opposition, persecution, at least overtly. We know that there are many people in this nation who have uh, turned uh, against and are hostile to the Christian heritage of this nation, a biblical worldview. And Father, we know that uh, that's the trend of history for all civilizations. We pray that there might be a turnaround because that happens at times, as it did with, did with those in Nineveh and as it has with uh, in this country at a few different times. And we pray that you might show us grace in that, that area. But Father, if not, we pray that we may be steadfast, faithful to you, and not give in to discouragement or anger or resentment, but that we might focus on the mission of being a light in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. And so, Father, tonight as we study one of the more difficult chapters in the Scriptures because of the content, we pray that you might give us insight because this kind of thing probably goes on around us a lot, a lot more than we would like to hope. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles to Judges chapter 19, and we're in this last section of Judges chapters 19, uh, 20, and 21. And uh, as we, I have mentioned in the introduction to this section, the last uh, two or three lessons, is this is the second longest episode in the book of the Judges, which tells us that God the Holy Spirit has a purpose for us learning it. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 that all scripture except for Judges 19 to 21 is profitable. <laughs> oh, he didn't say that, did he? He said all scripture, even those tough passages that we really don't like to spend a whole lot of time on because their content is makes us uncomfortable. But this is it's the kind of thing that uh, in many respects, not in all respects, but in many respects uh, is going on uh, around us just because we're following in the same path uh, path as Israel. And the, pa- and the plot of this story is complex, and so uh, we have to take a little time to go through it. I gave an overview last time, uh, walking us in a backwards fashion, starting at the end of the story, walking to the front of the story, so we would see how all each event, each decision along the way, 
uh, leads to that final uh, episode at the end, which is culminates in the final verse of the section. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, that, I believe, is a good and accurate translation. But what it says literally, it, it uses the word tov there, uh, which is the word, a Hebrew word for good. They did what was good in their own eyes. Now, I'm saying that because we see a play on words on that a couple of times as we go through the, through the episode. And so it is designed uh, to, uh, as an illustration of how they were, everyone was just doing what they thought was good and right. And that shows how when, when we get away from the Lord and away from Scripture, our, our definitions of good and bad, right and wrong, healthy and unhealthy just reverse. And that's what we face in this country. The definitions of male and female reverse. I mean, it's just as crazy as it can be. 15, 20 years ago, we never would have seen, thought we would see this, but that, that's what we see. So this episode here teaches us several principles, and it all focuses on the social, spiritual, and moral failure of the nation. And so last time what we looked at was the impact that spiritual apostasy has on the nation's divine institutions. All the divine institutions were under attack, and we see the same thing today. Every divine institution is under full-bore assault. And um, uh, it's, it's assaulted in the classrooms from kindergarten all the way, all the way up to uh, advanced studies, Ph.D. programs. Uh, the institution of higher education in this country is controlled now, that doesn't mean at every school and at every institution you, there are no Christians. But at many of them, there are none. Uh, they, they don't even have anyone who would uh, volunteer to admit that they were a conservative or a Republican. There are quite a few uh, colleges, Ivy League schools, where they, there is not a single conservative on the faculty. And yet we think, oh, what an honor it is. My, my child got accepted to Harvard or Yale or Princeton or Dartmouth or Brown University in Rhode Island. And isn't it wonderful? Yes, they will be inculcated in, in um, the devil's thinking like you can't even imagine. And study after study shows that within six weeks of going off to university, most evangelical kids have absolutely turned away from Christ and the Bible because in most evangelical churches, they're not given any apologetics. They're not given in the evidence for Christianity. They're not forewarned about these uh, things that are going on. And that's one of the things we try to do in our, in our prep school, but it's primarily the parents' responsibility to talk about these things and the importance of applying the word in all of these different uh, different areas, from the environmental issues to economic issues to moral issues, social issues, all of these things need to be addressed uh, around the kitchen table, the dining room table, from the time they're old enough to, even before, when they can't quite understand what you're talking about, you need to be talking about it that 
sort of pre-formats their thinking. So uh, spiritual apostasy is what comes first. That's what we saw in chapter uh, 17 and 18. It's a spiritual apostasy of the nation. And so in this section, we see the anatomy of the national self-destruction. And what's so fascinating is that in both of these, it's the decisions of individuals that seem to be isolated, but they're really not, especially as I'll point out in this, this lesson, the, the uh, anonymity of the main characters, the fact that they're not named, is a literary device to show that they really represent a whole class of people that were really as indifferent to the word and as steeped in moral relativism and spiritual abandonment of God as, as anything else. So individuals... Uh, decisions impact and shape the nation. And then last time I went through, got this in here twice, went through uh, the background of the attack and went all the way through from the end to the beginning. So I gave five principles at the end. First of all, as goes the believer, so goes the nation. And I don't need to belabor the point, but if you just watch what is goes out over the airwaves, as Christianity from so-called evangelicals, uh, it's just horrendous. And I get several uh, emails and newsletters from different, uh, for lack of a better term, sort of watchdog groups who give information about various uh, ministries, orthodox men and their offspring. And this last week we heard about... um, uh, I can't think of his name, Charles Stanley, went to be with the Lord. And his son is a great heretic and just a, as uh, has made so many horrible statements uh, over the years. And he's a graduate of Dallas Seminary. Now, he's not the way he is because of anything he got at Dallas. Okay, I want to make that clear. He is what he is because he made a lot of bad choices after he got out of, out of seminary. And the same thing, I believe, is true about Ed Young, Jr., Who's uh, who's from um, who's Dr. Young's son up in up in Dallas, and and the apostasy and the number of churches that are uh, allowing women preachers and uh, are validating those who are gender confused and affirming their uh, gender confusion and all of these things are going on in so-called evangelical churches. It, it's just amazing, but we shouldn't be amazed because that's exactly what we see in the period of Judges. Second principle we saw was that the assault on sexuality is an assault on the divine institution number two of marriage and divine institution number three of family. And once the family goes down, uh, then the nation will go down. And I made a statement last week, and I'll give you the the details, was that in a Time magazine article in 2010 of all places they made the statement that the American family has been nuked and that's true we didn't like it when President Obama came up and said we're not a Christian nation but that was the truth if you define Christianity the way we do and George Barnard defines it according to nine basic beliefs and he's spot on. And we have less than 3% of Americans probably in a recent poll said that got cut in half during COVID. Less than 1.5% of America holds to a consistent Judeo-Christian worldview. That's where we are. 
So we are indeed lights in a very dark situation. And the marriage is under assault, family is under assault. And third, a state of antagonism exists between the sex, sexes as a result of the curse. The only thing that's going to reverse it is regeneration and uh, individuals growing to spiritual maturity as defined and understand what marriage is all about and how husbands and wives ought to relate to each other biblically. It's only as a result of the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, in their lives. And our culture has completely rejected any of the basic establishment principles or biblical teaching on marriage. In fact, they want to redefine marriage. And marriage can be anything from a couple, same-sex couple, it can be a heterosexual couple. It can be a thruple. And when you've got a thruple, you got trouble. And that's where we're headed. So this is just a complete breakdown of sexual identity and, and the, God, the divine purpose for it. That's you know, one of the reasons that, that you have a large segment of our culture saying we've got to open the gates to all this illegal immigration is because they recognize something nobody ever talks about. That that the uh, historic Americans who come from a European background are not making babies. And when the baby boomers of that generation, because e even, even um, 30 years ago, 30, 35 years ago, Houston had a population that was still about 80% Caucasian, 75 to 80% Caucasian. That's completely changed now. And we and I, this isn't a racist statement. It's, it's the reality. But what they're doing is completely racist. They want all these illegals coming in because somebody's got to be the laborers who are going to be paying money into the, into the tax coffers and into Social Security coffers so that the rest of us can get our Social Security checks. Otherwise, they realize that all the social programs will go bankrupt if we don't get more and more people coming in who are going to be paying because the birth rate among the what I would call the sort of historic traditional demographic of America has dropped below uh, survival rate. And the result of that is that, that we would have bankrupted Social Security probably 10 or 15 years ago and welfare state, but we have all these other laborers coming in so they can pay for your retirement, pay your Social Security, because the government's already spent what we gave them. They weren't supposed to, but they did. So it's just an absolute mess, and you've got a breakdown of every institution in, in, in the country. The more a culture rejects establishment principles and biblical teaching, the more antagonism there's going to be and breakdown with, between the sexes. And that's exactly what we see. In a pagan culture, our, I think this is the fourth principle, in a pagan culture, one sex or the other dominates. In a human viewpoint, patriarchy, that's what we see here. We see elements of a human viewpoint, patriarchy. Women become second-class citizens. They're abused. The desire is, well, we need, a human, we need a matriarchy. No, human viewpoint matriarchy doesn't work either. Only a biblical patriarchy works. Because only in a pat biblical patriarchy are husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. 
and only on that basis can you have a truly successful marriage where the two become one flesh in a full sense of that word in terms of a, a total unity. So last, the fifth point, the only solution is a divine viewpoint recognition of the roles of male and female and the equality as their equality as image bearers. They are equal as image bearers. They have different roles, but that doesn't mean one is less than the other. But the human viewpoint comes along and says, well, if one is supposed to be submissive to the other, that means they're not as important. That means they're less. And feminists come right along and say, yeah, that's right. And it's all an attack on the, ultimately on the Trinity because in the Trinity you have the three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are absolutely equal in essence, but they have different roles, and there's a subordination. And when God created male and female, they were to complement each other. So it's a complete, complete breakdown. So we've come to Judges 19.1, and... What we're seeing here, I'll give you a couple of more points before we get into the end of that passage. Um, just to, by way of overview, uh, we've got a division that we're going to look at in a minute. That the, There are two parts in chapter 19, which we'll get through tonight. The first 10 verses and then 10 through 30. In the first 10 ver- verses, we see the background to the violence at, at Gibeah. And then in the next 20 verses, we see the nature of that violence, and there's a social breakdown and a morality breakdown, an outrage over uh, a social problem and an outrage over a a moral problem. That's how we'll break it down. But from a theological viewpoint, as we look at this episode, what's interesting is God is not mentioned in the first 30 verses either by name of Yahweh or by the generic term for God, which is Elohim. So in these first 30 verses, there's no mention of God at all. It's showing that this has become a totally secular culture. Second thing that we should note, that when we get into chapter 20, Israel is going to assemble, quote, before the Lord at Mizpah in chapter 20, verse verse 1. Okay, they all gather at Mizpah, which is a very important covenant renewal site. They will gather as the people of God in verse 2. They're called the people of God. And verse uh, uh they will consult him at Bethel, and, and he, uh, he responds. And the Israelites weep before Yahweh at Bethel in 21.1, and they freely use his name many times. But it doesn't penetrate their thinking. They're just giving lip service to God. That's what happens in paganism. And how many churches are just giving lip service to God? They go through their liturgy on Sunday morning, but it never penetrates their thinking. It never penetrates their the way they live or the way they act. It, it's just something that's external, and we go through the motions because that's our tradition, but it never really really penetrates or changes uh, the culture. Another thing that we're going to see in this chapter is that uh, it, it, there is a parallel in this story 
in the story of Sodom in Genesis 19. And it is intentional, intentionally written that way so that when you read it, you're going to remember what happened at Sodom and how bad that was. We're going to see in both, both cases, there's a small group of travelers that arrive in the city in the evening. Uh, a person who is himself an alien observes the presence of this company in this passage in, in Genesis 19. It, it's Lot and, and his family, and he's of course, is not a native Sodomite. Uh, and uh, he's going to see these two angels that come in. And the tra- they want to spend the night in the open square. Same thing happens here. You have uh, the Levite and his concubine and his servant. They want to spend the night in the public square. And there's somebody, Lot in Genesis 19, and the man uh, who comes in who's also not, not a native to Gibeah. And he sees them uh, camping out in the square, and he absolutely insists that they come in and stay at his house just as Lot insisted that these two angels come in and stay in their house. So the host is very hospitable uh, in both cases. The host and the guests share a meal, and then the depraved, perverted men of the city surround the house, and they beat on the door. They are overwhelmed by their sexual uh, passion and their lack of sexual self-control, and they demand that the host in Sodom, that he'd give their male guests to them so that they can have their way with them. And in this passage, that they demand that the, um, th- that the host give his daughter and the concubine uh, to them so that they can gang rape them. And then the host is going to uh, protest that wickedness, but in the end, uh, they will hand over uh, someone to the uh, to the to be gang raped uh, by the uh, perverts of the city, and so what what the writer and judges wants us to do is to reflect that that this was the way they acted in Sodom, and what happened? God was brought judgment against them, and this is how the people in Gibeah, who are part of the tribe of Benjamin, and Benjamin is, uh, permits it. And so there's going to be a judgment on the tribe of Benjamin that's going to come in in uh, chapter 20 and chapter 21. And there are many time, many words, many phrases that are almost in the exact phrase and the exact word order in uh, uh, Judges 19 and in Genesis 19. So God wants us to pay attention to this because this is the anatomy of the, of the breakdown. So we read that in the opening line, it came to pass in those days. Now, these days, we have to talk about this a minute, because in these days, we have seen that in the chapter before, in 17 and 18, that the unnamed Levitical priest uh, that's at the core of the idolatry is finally named at the end, and he's Moses' grandson. He is Jonathan, uh, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses. And then when we get into uh, this chapter, chapter uh, 20, we discover that the key, a key figure, the only one named that I can see, is Phineas, who's the high priest, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron. So you've got the grandson of Moses and the grandson of of uh, uh, Aaron, cousins. 
But the Moses grandson leads the nation into idolatry, and Phineas is going to uh, stand strong against the permissiveness. And so we we see these differences there. And this is a time when um, there is no king in Israel. This is what ha- as was stated in Deuteronomy 33, that the king in Jeshur was Yahweh. They've rejected Yahweh as king, and they have abandoned Yahweh for all of the idols. That goes back to Judges uh, 3, 1 through 5. And so as a result of that, we have... Um, we have just chaos that's beginning to rule. And this is at the at the very beginning, at the early part of this period. We know that, first of all, because you've got the grandson of Moses and Aaron there. So this is not far removed from the Exodus generation. And uh, then it's so it's early in the period and the tribes are still united because when the alarm goes out, they all come together and uh, react as a unit against this atrocity. We also see that Bethel, and in a couple places it's just translated as the house of God because Bethel means the house of God. Beit is the Hebrew word for house. El is the word for God. So Bethel, Bethel, is the house of God. And so uh, Bethel is a sanctuary. And in um, uh, 1918, it's called Beit Yahweh, the house of Yahweh. So the Levite Levitical priest here says that he's on his way to the house of Yahweh. So maybe he's just making this up that he's trying to sound holier than thou, and he's on his way to work at the at the, at Shiloh, which is where the tabernacle was. But Shiloh's not mentioned. Only Bethel and Mizpah are mentioned, and they have a sacred significance in the history of Israel. So what we see also in this first verse is that the two key people, the Levite and then the concubine are unnamed. The reason they're unnamed is it's a literary device in order to emphasize that that they're real people, but they remain anonymous because they represent a class of people that are dominating uh, Israel at the time. And one of the things that this passage will show is that just as the Levite is going to dismember the dead concubine. Uh, the nation is going to gather together as one man, and then it's going to fall apart, dismember itself in civil war. So there's all of these, diff- there's just layers of significance in the way that the Holy Spirit has, has brought this together. The other thing about uh, making these people anonymous is it dehumanizes them. They're not they're not uh, people you might think you know. Um, even um, uh, Micah's Levitical priest has a name, but you go through this and you don't have a name uh, for the Levitical priest or for the concubine. And there's there's a significance to the fact that the concubine is is never named because. The author is letting us realize that that the the main characters don't really care about her as a person either, and and her 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 desires and wishes are never referenced. Everybody around her makes the decisions for her, which is typical of human viewpoint uh, uh, patriarchy. So she is his concubine. I covered this uh, last time. This is the word. In Hebrew, uh, uh, Pilagesh, 
and it's a legitimate wife. A concubine is one that is a, a second-class wife, but she is considered a wife. She has certain privileges that are protected by the Mosaic law because God did not want these concubines. He's, he's recognizing this is what they do. He's not legitimizing what they do, but he is regulating it so that the concubines are not going to be maltreated and abused. Uh, and if they do, it's a violation a violation of, of, of the law. So, and we I pointed out last time that uh, uh, she's from Bethlehem in Judah. That the main action in this story is in Gibeah, which is the town uh, where Saul, which Saul will come from in uh, about two or three hundred years. But it's introducing these key these key villages because that's all they are at that time. You've got Gibeah, and uh, you have um, uh, Bethlehem. So this is, I pointed this out last time from the Complete Word Study Dictionary, that uh, Pilagesh is a legitimate wife. She's a second-class wife, and uh, we have evidence in the passage that uh, she's called a wife, an ish, isha rather, and um, uh, her father is the man's, the Levite's father-in-law. The Levite is the, the her father's son-in-law. So all of this seems to indicate she's treated as a wife, very uncommon to us. So the action in this map is all down in this area. Um, Gibeah is located uh, right down here. There's Gibeah in there, but uh, this is also, there's two towns that are very similar, but it's about in a very similar location here. But where the uh, Levite is living is up in the uh, territory of of Ephraim. And so this just shows uh, kind of the background on all of this. Two observations that I pointed out last time, the concubines from Bethlehem. We have to ask why is that starting to be emphasized? And the bad, bad events are in Gibeah. And then we read in the New King James that the concubine played the harlot against him. And so that makes us think that, well, she's been unfaithful, but that, that, that's an illegitimate translation. The Greek word is zanad there, and there's a two there to indicate there's a, syn- a homonym, zanah, spelled the same way that has a different meaning. The first zanah means to commit fornication or to be a prostitute, and the second zana means to be angry or to feel repugnance at something, according to the uh, Hebrew um, Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament. It's also the reading in the Septuagint and the Targum on this. So his concubine became angry with him, and she goes home to daddy uh, back in Bethlehem, and he lets her cool down for about four months, and then he goes, and when he shows up, there's no animosity. She's she seems to uh, be glad that he's um, uh, that he's there. Doesn't really say it, but but we get a, a, a sense from reading this that the writer of Judges is is sympathetic toward her and not so sympathetic to the to the uh, uh, Levitical priest. So she goes home, and she's there for four months. And then he goes after her in verse 3. Her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her. 
and bring her back. Now that phrase, it's translated speak kindly to her, uh, literally says to speak to her heart. So it's an idiom. He's speaking tenderly to her. He uh, wants to woo her back and to go uh, return home with her, with him. And uh, he came, and he's very thoughtful. He brought a servant to help with packing and carrying everything. And he brought a couple of donkeys with him, uh, to care, one for her to ride and one to carry her uh, belongings, her possessions. And when he arrives, notice, where's the concubine mentioned? You see it? She's not. He arrives... His, fa- his father-in-law comes out to meet him and throws his arms around him, shakes his hand, says, come on in and have a drink. And so they have their little good old boy uh, confab for the next uh, three or four days, five days before he finally leaves. And that's uh, that procrastination and the emphasis on the time frame here is something the Holy Spirit wants us to pay attention to. He says, now his father-in-law, the young woman's father, wanted to make sure it's very clear who he is, detained him. He said, you know, why don't you stay? He was probably lonely, wanted a little male companionship and have a good time. And he stayed with, so the Levites stayed for three days. So they ate and drank and lodged there. And it came to pass on the fourth day that he arose early in the morning packed up the donkeys, was ready to leave. But the father-in-law comes out and says, well, why don't you just stay a little while longer? We've got all this food still. Come in and have some bread. And uh, afterward, you can go your way. So they sat down, and the two of them, no, there's no mention of, of the woman at all. She is totally ignored. It's all about them. This is human viewpoint patriarchy. Who cares what she thinks? Who cares what she feels like? It's not relevant for what they're doing. And she's probably sitting there thinking, we need to be on the way. When are we going to be gone? How are we going to get there? And as they get to the last day and the time drags on, she's probably recognizes that they're putting themselves in an insecure position that when they arrive where they want to spend the night, it's going to be dark, and it's not going to be safe on the road to travel at night. And so, verse 6, they sat down, they ate and drank together, and he gets convinced to stay again, and um, he's going to spend the night again, and he stayed there. Then he rose early in the morning on the fifth day to depart. So he's had four days there, but the young woman's father says, well, just... Why don't you just take your traveling clothes off and let's sit down and have a good breakfast? And and so they eat and drink until it gets late in the afternoon. And then the Levite realizes he really needs to be going. And so he and his concubine and his servant uh, get ready to go. And his father-in-law says, oh, the day is drawing toward evening. Please spend the night. The day is coming to an end. Lodge here that your heart may be merry Tomorrow, go your way early that you may go home. So what do we have here? It starts in verse 4, and we go through six verses so far, far just describing the time frame. Now, what have I been telling you about Bible study methods? 
when the Holy Spirit slows down and gives us this kind of detail, it's not to bore you and put you to sleep. He's trying to make a point so that you focus on what's happening. The procrastination here is what sets the stage for a late departure and a late arrival in Gibeah. So uh, it's late. His father-in-law saying, stay over another night, but the man was not willing to spend the night. I take bets that, that his wife was telling him, we need to leave. So he, he's, but that's not in the scriptures, so that's just my opinion. Um, the man was, finally makes up his mind to leave. He rose and departed, and he came opposite Jebus. So they've been in Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem is only about five or six miles from Jerusalem. It's very close. And so they would have made that traveling by donkey in probably about two, three hours. And so they get up towards, uh, after probably a couple of hours, they would be outside of Jebus. The Jebusites live there. Remember, David doesn't capture Jerusalem until the early part of his reign and defeat the Jebusites. So it's a Canaanite city. The irony here is that they have an opportunity, it's still daylight, to go into the city and to stay there where they would be safe behind the walls. But because they're Canaanites, they say, no, we need to go where we'll be safe in Gibeah. The irony is they're not going to be safe among Israelites. They would have been safer with the unbelievers and the pagans. So the servant is trying to get him to turn aside, go to the Jebusites, spend the night, and Levite says, no, no, we're we're not going to do that. We're going to go on, and we are going to um, go on to Gibeah. Now, Gibeah... Uh, isn't that far, far away? It's about another maybe six or seven miles. Uh, it's ten, nine or ten kilometers, so it's about what five or six, seven miles, something like that. About six miles to to Gibeah. In fact, in modern Jerusalem, Gibeah is within the city limits of of today's Jerusalem, and so they arrive at at, at they go to Gibeah. And in verse 10, we read, However, the man was not spent, willing to spend that night, so he rose, departed, and came opposite Jebus. Did I repeat that? Yes, I did, so I'm trying to emphasize something. So they've been at Jebus and Jerusalem, and now what we're going to see at the end of this section, we're going to see, first of all, there's the outrage of the old man that that runs into them because uh, the people at Gibeah are inhospitable. Okay, now there's a contrast here because when he goes to his father-in-law, he's very hospitable. He's just feeding him and giving him all he wants to drink. There's an emphasis on, on that hospitality. When he gets to Gibeah, uh, it's a different story. There's not hospitality. And the old man that's going to come up on them as they're going to camp out in the city, in the city square, the village square, is, um, it warns them. He, he's frightened for them, for their safety to stay out in the open in the city because he knows how bad the people are. And, um, 
So we'll come back to that. That's the first part. So that really goes down to about verse 9. And then from 10 to 21, we're going to see this this outrage. So 10 through 12 give us the introduction to their arrival in in Gibeah. Uh, We'll see that the second part from 22 to 30 is the moral outrage of the Levite and the man of the house toward these perverted, uh, chaotic sons of Belial that are in the city, these wicked, evil men. So that's the first part, focusing on that um, outrage of the old man. So uh, they come into Gibeah, and the Levite says to his serpent, Come, let us let us draw near to one of these places, spend the night in Gibeah or Ramah. Where, where, do we, where have we learned about Ramah? Ramah is very close. Ramah is where Sam, Samuel was from. So they're, they're just right next to each other, and they decide to go to Gibeah. They... They passed by and went their way. The sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. The point's being made there. This is introducing what's going to happen to Benjamin, to the tribe. So they turned aside there, and they went in to lodge in Gibeah. And when he went, they went in, that is, went, into, went through the walls, went through the gate, into the, into the village, he sat down in the open square because no one would take them into his house to spend the night. There's no hospitality there. There's no welcome. There's no food. Nobody cares about them. What about Leviticus 19.18? You're to love your neighbor as yourself. See, that's not there. There's an absence of love, absence of hospitality. So this old man comes in. And the old man comes in, and he's not a native Gibeite. He is from Ephraim, the same place where the Levite has been living, where the other Levite was living. So he's from the mountains of Ephraim, staying in Gibeah, and the men of the place were Benjamites. So that's the second time that Benjamin is mentioned. So the author really wants us to pay attention to just exactly what is going on here uh, in this section, that, that there's no hospitality at all. And so as this old man comes in, he, verse 17, he sees the traveler in the open square and his concubine and his servant and the donkeys and he starts saying, well, who are you? Where are you from? And, and where, where are you going? What, what's happening here? And so the Levite answers him and tells him, well, we're passing from Bethlehem. It's interesting. He doesn't go into the background. He doesn't say, well, my concubine left me and I went to get her. Now she's coming back with me. It's as if she doesn't exist. She's not even mentioned. She's just ignored. Matter of fact, I, I didn't point this out, but when he and his father-in-law are having their little parties for a couple of days and then they leave, we don't have any idea if she wants to go with him or not. We're not informed of her emotions, if she's glad to see him. She's almost as a non-existent person. And the writer wants us to understand that this is what happens in paganism is that you have this war, the sexes, and the women are minimized and marginalized. 
because that's what paganism does. Going back to Genesis 3.15, which we looked at the, the, our 3.16 the last time, uh, that the woman's desire would be to control the man and the man would rule over her. The only thing that reverses that part of the curse is going to be salvation and getting in line with the Word of God. Um, so he gives a story. We're passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote mountains of Ephraim. I'm from there. I went to Bethlehem in Judah. He doesn't say I went to Bethlehem to get her. I just went to Bethlehem. Now I'm going to the Beit Yahweh, the house of the Lord. So he, it's almost as, he, now he's not headed to Shiloh. That's where the house of the Lord is. That's where the Mishkan, the tabernacle is located. But he's sort of dressing up his story in the right kind of holy language to impress this guy. So we're on our way to the house of the Lord, but no one's going to take us into their house. We're being ignored. Although we have straw, we have fodder for our donkeys, so we, you know, people don't have to give us any food. We've got bread and wine for myself, for your female servant, and for the young man who is with your servant. There's no lack of anything. We have plenty of food for ourselves, for our donkeys, and so we're not going to be dependent on anybody, but nobody wants to give us shelter. So the old man says to him, Shalom Laka, peace be with you. Let all your needs be my responsibility. Now, he's showing genuine hospitality. I'll take care of all your needs. You're going to come into my house. You're going to stay in my house. You're going to sleep in my house, and I'm going to keep you safe and secure. But don't spend the night in the open square. So he brought him into his house and gave fodder to the donkeys, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. Now, what's interesting among the, in all of this is that the, the description of the moral outrage here towards the inhabitants and their lack of hospitality in verses uh, that comes up in verses 22 to 26 is um, that's really the moral outrage of the, of the man and the Levite towards the uh, populace, the, the evil men in Gibeah. Uh, this upcoming section in, in 22 to 26 uh, is almost word for word and all the, all the main words what you find in Genesis 19. Uh, it, it echoes Genesis 19, 4 through 8 and it, it's meant intentionally to be this, this kind of parable. In fact, both texts have exactly the same number of words in the Hebrew, 66 words, and one-fourth of the words in Genesis occur in exactly the same form as they're found in Judges. It's very clear that the writer of Judges wants us to connect this to what's going on in Sodom, and he's making a point, and that is when People get away from the Lord and get to the point where they have destroyed their understanding of divine institution two and three. In other words, they have sexual confusion and that the result is it destroys this culture. It wipes it out. And that's exactly what we see here. You have homosexuality in both places and sexual perversion. 
So we see this moral outrage from the Levite and the man in the house. So they're inside, and it's all secure, and they're comfortable. And suddenly, the text says, certain men of the city. Now, it's translated perverted men, which isn't a bad translation, but literally, it's the son of Belial. And in the Hebrew, it's the men of the city, the sons of wickedness. Belial was a term for those who were wicked. And the phrase, the sons of wickedness, is explaining who these men are. And uh, one of the other things that we learn is that in the uh, Qumran literature, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls, that the term Belial is a title for Satan. So that's very interesting connection. So they understand that that Satan is behind this. It's it's a demonic behavior. It's influenced by demons, not not that they're demon possessed. And so they come out. They have uh, lost all control. They are uh, absolutely under the um, uh, under the influence of their sexual desires. And they're beating on the door, they're banging on the house, they're having a demonstration outside, and they're uh, making all kinds of noise, demanding that, uh, uh, bring out the man who came to your house, that we can know him carnally. So they're, they, they're homosexual, they want to gang rape the man. But the man, that is the master of the house, goes out to them, and he's negotiating. He says, no, no, don't do this. I beg you, don't act so wickedly. Seeing that this man has come into my house, don't commit this outrage. And that word for outrage is the word Nivala from Nabal. Remember the story of Abigail and her husband, Nabal, who's a fool? That's where this word comes from. He's saying they're fools. We could spend a whole night just going through the difference between the wise man and the fool from Proverbs. And that's that's the description here. Don't commit this foolishness. This is absolutely horrible. Don't act so wickedly. And the word there is the word for evil, ra. So we get into verse 24. We read, look, now he's going to bargain with his virgin daughter. That's the same thing that happens with Lot. I, you, you just can't comprehend this. How could a man take his heart? But it shows that, that, that the, the women are second-class citizens. They don't have any more value than, than one of the domesticated animals. This is exactly the way it is in Islam. The women are not as high on the pecking order as the camels and the sheep. And so he, he's willing to, to uh, give up his, his virgin daughter and the concubine in order to satisfy these men so that they would go away. And he said, uh, humble them, which means, you know, just completely take advantage of them. Do whatever you want to with them. Do what, do to them, uh, do with them as you please, which literally in the Hebrew is do to them what is good in your eyes. That's the theme of judges. Everyone is doing what's good in their own eyes. Do to them what is good in your eyes. But to this man, this is a vile thing, Navala. It's a foolish thing, horrible thing. But the men wouldn't listen to him. So the man, that is the host, uh, 
Oh, so the man, that, that's the Levite here. Excuse me, I misread that. Uh, the man took his concubine and brought her out to them. So he's, he's, um, he's uh, uh, as irresponsible as the uh, host is. He gives his concubine to them. And then in, in very euphemistic language, they knew her and abused her all night until morning. It just goes on. It's just absolutely horrific. But the men would not listen to him, and they just uh, gang-raped her all night. When the day began to break, they let her go. So they went home. And then we come to towards a conclusion. Then the woman came as the day was dawning, and she fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was till it was light. Now, one of the things that happens is in the Masoretic text, we're not told if she died or not. Next thing we know, he's cutting her up. But the Septuagint adds, uh, and she died. Uh, when her master arose in the morning and opened the doors of the house and went out to go his way, so he seems pretty not... This is cold. This is just just as, as cold and impersonal and uncaring as you can be. He opens the door and he doesn't even see her and she's lying there, just an absolute wreck and dead, and he stumbles over her. And... She's right there at the threshold, scratching on the door, trying to get in. And she's died there. And he looks down and sees her, and with no compassion, no caring whatsoever. He just looks at her and says, get up, get dressed, let's go. He doesn't care. The women are just treated like baggage. They're irrelevant in a patriarchal, uh, in a human viewpoint, patriarchy. And this is what happens in paganism. And that's what's happening. What the irony is in our culture is that for the last 40, 50 years, we've had this movement among feminism and the feminists that we're going to have equal opportunity for women in athletics. And now the leftists are saying, no, we gotta, we got to let the men who think they're women, who are totally psychotic, who are totally out of touch with reality, we've got to let them compete in women's sports against the women because uh, we, we've, got, we, we've got to validate their gender confusion. How insane is that? We have become totally anti-woman. In just the last three or four years, we have just gone totally insane, and this culture no longer believes in uh, women's rights and uh, opportunities to compete on a level playing field. So he goes back into his house in verse 29. He took a knife. He put his... uh, concubine out and divided her into 12 pieces can you imagine this this is his wife she's just been gang raped and he goes in there and he carves her up into 12 pieces and I don't know if you've ever butchered an animal I've been a hunter for probably 35 40 years and I have have, uh, was taught by actually two vets I was taught by a vet 
a veterinarian when I first hunted. I hunted with a guy who was a veterinarian, and he taught me how to properly uh, butcher an animal, how to eviscerate them, how to take care of everything, and how to do it the right way. And then um, probably about eight or nine years ago on one of the men's campouts, uh, we, we get, bought a goat and um, killed the goat, uh, sort of like demonstrating what a sacrifice would have been like. And then Jay Collins, who was a veterinarian, he went to be with the Lord last summer, Jay showed us how to properly uh, skin the animal and to uh, eviscerate the animal and how to properly take care of all the meat. And I didn't tell Jay this because Jay, Jay would not have taken it well, but he didn't teach me anything that I hadn't already been taught. But can you imagine doing that with a human being, with a human body? I mean, I don't even like to watch when I watch all these CSI-type shows and murder shows on TV, and they go into the coroner's office, and they're showing him. Of course, they're not actually cutting up a human body, but um, but they are. And he just does this. It, it seems it's presented in a very cold uh, manner. He divides her into 12 pieces, limb by limb, and then he sends her throughout the territory of Israel. Now, we're not told how he did that. But he must have hired messengers that would take a part, one of her body parts and take it to the leaders of each of the different tribes. It was a call to arms. And, it, and the story would have been told of what happened. And look at what has happened within Israel. We are to be God's people. And look at what has happened. Look at this evil that has taken place and and nobody in Gibeah or in Benjamin is going to do anything about it. So it was that all who saw it said, No such deed has been done or seen from the day that the children of Israel came up from the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, confer, and speak up. So they respond. That's what comes up in the next episode. In chapter chapter 20, the war against Benjamin. Now, when I taught this back in 20, I think it was 2000 or 2001, I ended with a with a story that at that time had not been debunked. So I wanted to wanted to get the record straight here. But there was a tragic story that uh, involved the victim whose name was Kitty Genovese. She was a 28-year-old bartender, and on the early hours of March 13, 1964, uh, she was raped and stabbed outside of her apartment building uh, where she lived in Queens, New York. And two weeks after the murder, the New York Times, that rag of, of veracity, even in 1964... Uh, had an article that claimed that there were 38 witnesses who saw or heard the attack and that none of them called the police and came to her aid. Well, that story was picked up by Howard Hendricks, who's Professor Dow Seminary, wrote a wonderful book on Bible study methods called Living by the Book, which came out in 1991. Now, it wasn't exposed until 2007, in an article in the American Psychologist that found that there was no evidence for the presence of 38 witnesses, that they had found some witnesses who, witnesses who had called in and reported it and tried to get involved, 
and that in fact they did catch the man who did it. He was a uh, 29-year-old Manhattan native, and they arrested him for burglary six days after the murder, and he was con- he confessed to the to the killing. But that was listed. Uh, Dr. Hendricks used that as an illustration of this point that that the public can be completely. Um, completely cold and callous to the crime that's going on around it. Now, I think that pr- that principle is true, but I wanted to correct the story because when I used it in 2001 and when he used it in his book it, that came out in 1991, uh, it wasn't revealed until 2007 that, that the New York Times had basically made it all up. Who knew that the New York Times would do that? Anyway... The point stands, though, and that is that in our urban, paganized culture, people would rather close their doors and not be involved, and they have rejected any sort of basis for declaring anything to be absolutely right or absolutely wrong. And this is the result when we remove God from the classroom, when we remove God from the society, when we remove God from the courtroom, uh, we have no basis anymore. It is almost a mockery for the Supreme Court building in Washington, D.C. to have uh, Moses and the Ten Commandments up on the wall because we've rejected that as, as an absolute. We'd have to tear down the whole Supreme Court building if we were to remove that, unlike what happened in um, uh, Alabama uh, uh, about 15 years ago when the uh, uh, Supreme Court of Alabama uh, made the judge there remove the um, Ten Commandments from his courtroom. The irony of that is you have a state telling telling the, a judge in the state to remove the Ten Commandments from their courtroom when the Supreme Court of the United States has the Ten Commandments on their wall. But but whoever said that pagans were concerned about either consistency or accuracy, and um, but we're headed down that same road. But the the reality is that God's grace. Look at what happens after this period. You have Ruth. We're not going to study Ruth after this, but Ruth is a t- takes place in the same time, and it's a story of God's grace and redemption because Ruth becomes the great grandmother to King David, and King David becomes the one who gets the covenant from God, and he's the one who is going to be the progenitor of, of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, the line of David. And so we see that God's grace continues even when uh, mankind just rebels against him and reaps the results of their own um, denial of God's existence. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study this. As difficult it is, as as um, uh, as hard as it is, we know that you've revealed it to us for a purpose. And we're to learn lessons from this. We're to gain wisdom from it so that we can have uh, wisdom and perception and understand uh, in a discerning manner what is going on in our own culture and that we can see these same trends uh, taking place in our society. And we need to teach our children and our grandchildren about these things. And we need to give them the wisdom that comes from your, from your word uh, so that they can grow up and not be deceived by Satan's world, but that they may have their eyes opened and live in accordance with your word and your will. And we pray this in Christ's name.
Amen.